Well, good morning again, friends. Thank you so much for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary. For those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or wherever you are tuning in from. Uh, if you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint and we've not had the opportunity to be introduced, my name's Jamie. I get to serve as one of the pastors uh, here at Crosspoint. I get the privilege of opening up God's word with you all uh, this morning. And so uh, excited to, to dive into week two of Advent. Uh, quick disclaimer on the start earlier in the week, I was not feeling so great. Feeling fine now, uh, but my voice has not caught up uh, to that. So uh, just bear with me. Um, well, I had a nice uh, voice crack in the chapel service that I that I led. So it was, that was a fun moment. But anyway, um, grateful to be gathered with you all, regardless of what's going on with uh, my voice. And we are week two of this Advent season in this series we began last week called Longing for Emmanuel. Emmanuel simply means God with us that desire that we all have to know and to feel and to experience the presence of God, to, to yes, intellectually understand that, that God is present with his people, but what would it look like to have that see, really sink in into the deepest like recesses of our, of our hearts, the, those places where we're like, I don't actually know if God could meet me in there. It feels too painful, too broken, too dark, and to know that the light of the gospel wants to shine into those places. And so this morning, uh, I wanna invite you to turn to John chapter 14, all right? I would encourage you to have God's word out in front of you. Um, so if you brought a Bible, use that, or you can use one of the pew Bibles in front of you. You can also scan the QR code uh, in the pew in front of you, or go to thisiscp.church and click that little blue next steps icon in the lower right corner of your phone. It'll bring up a menu where it says sermon notes. The text will be there. Anything I put up on the slides this morning uh, will be there. Uh, it's a way to follow along, but we wanna hear from God's word. Uh, this morning we'll be in John 14. We're gonna pick it up in verse 15 through verse 27. Uh, you will see this wouldn't necessarily be regarded as a traditional, in many ways, maybe what we think of as Advent or Christmas passage, but there's so much beauty in here about God coming to be with us his people. So if you're able, I want to invite you, please stand as I read God's word this morning. John 14, beginning in verse 15, it says this, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. And these things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And he will bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So friends, as we get into things uh, this morning and we are week two of Advent, I wanna keep coming back to this as a bit of a framework for how we can think about these these things because Advent is is more than just the countdown to Christmas. We're excited about Christmas. We love Christmas. We'll celebrate that, put the Christmas decorations up, do all the those things. But historically in the church calendar, it's the beginning of the Christian new year. And so last week we looked at the first advent. We looked at the promise of Jesus coming in the incarnation, the word made flesh. But really, I think it's helpful to think in terms of three advents, all right? So we have the advent in the past of Jesus' first coming. So we don't have to pretend like, well, I wonder if he's gonna show up. Like, no, he historically has. And we praise God for that. And we also know that he's promised that he is going to come again one day, that Jesus is gonna split the sky. He's gonna show up, usher in new heavens, new earth. All right, and we long for that day where he'll wipe away every tear. We'll be looking at that more next week. But there's also this reality that God is present with us, like right here. So it's not just in the past and it's not just in the future, though it includes those things, but there's also a present day reality. And so it's helpful to think in terms of like these three advents, these three comings, these three arrivals. And the first, as we looked at last week, it, it speaks to this longing that you and I have for redemption, to be, to be free, to, to be liberated. And next week, we will look at this longing that we have. When Jesus comes back, it, it speaks to this longing that we have for glorification, for everything to be set right. But if you're like me, one of the struggles I think sometimes can be like, okay, so we get that Jesus showed up one time and we hold on to the promise that he's going to return. But like, what about like right here, right now? Like, what does it look like on December 10th, 2023 with all that this last week has been and all you anticipate the week ahead to be and all the things that have transpired over this past calendar year and maybe all your hopes and dreams and fears as you look ahead to the the new year, like, what is this word? What is this ancient text that we just read? What does this Advent season have to say to you and me like in this moment? And friends, it has so much to speak to that we're not called to simply just celebrate the first coming and just kind of bide our time until Jesus comes back again or we pass away from, from this earth, but rather there is this good work that's been given to us and there's a longing. What we're gonna look at this morning really is this, uh, this longing that we have. And here's this, big theological word for sanctification. This longing that we have, sanctification means to be like to be set apart, to be made more holy, to be made and conformed more into the image of Jesus. That there's this deep longing that we have where we're, when we're honest with ourselves as we should be, and as we read the scriptures, we realize like, oh, there's more joy to be found. There, there's more ways to trust and to surrender to God. And sometimes we're reluctant to do that. But Advent is this invitation of what does it look like to allow the spirit of God to work in and through us, to sanctify us, to make us more holy. That there's a deep longing that we have that the Lord wants to speak into in this moment, like right here, like God is present with us. So this longing for sanctification to help us define that as well. There's a, uh, the shorter, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And when asked like, what is sanctification gives this answer. And I think this is helpful to see, and this is in the sermon notes as well. So you can look back at it later on, but sanctification, it is the work of God's free grace. It's not that God saved you. And then it's up to you to like work really hard. All right. To grow in your sanctification, to grow in your holiness, to grow into conformity to Jesus and to God's will. It's all an act of grace, whereby we are renewed 
in the whole man, like our whole person after the image of God and are enabled, and hear this, more and more to die unto sin, to put to death certain practices, things that would not bring us joy, but rather rob us of joy and of life, and then to live unto righteousness, all empowered by God's grace. And so I believe there's a deep longing now, you may not have woken up this morning and thought, you know what? I've got a deep longing for sanctification. Like, I hope I can hear about that this morning. We may not always use that terminology, but I believe it is present. It's present in my life and in your life. And what this passage we're gonna look at speaks to that in some beautiful and profound ways, helping us answer this question, like how does that growth? Because we don't, we're not like longing for stagnation, right? We're longing for this sanctifying work. And how does God bring that about. Well, this passage helps answer this question. How does that actually happen? And the first thing that we're gonna see in this is Jesus wants to make it very clear that he is giving us an amazing gift. In fact, he's requesting an amazing gift that the Father is going to give to us, that there's a promised presence that is seen here. So look back with me over verses 15 to 20, and we will see just this unbelievable offer that's available to any who would trust in Christ. Now, Verse 15, all right, we'll come back to in a moment. In fact, we're gonna come back to all of these verses in just a moment because I wanna just take a step back for a moment and start where John begins his gospel. Like if you and I were to go and we were to read John chapter one, that would be John's sort of Christmas account. It's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all tell more of kind of the, the history, the kind of the things we would expect about shepherds and angels and all of the, those things and you know Mary and Joseph. But John goes back goes back before time, goes, uses different language around this, but he's telling the Christmas story. Back to John 1, I'll read verse 1 and then verse 14 of chapter 1. It says this, in the beginning, John writes, was the Word. Hmm. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. So we're introduced to this person, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, all right? referred to as the word. And not only was this word with God from before time, before anything was ever created, this word actually was God. And then we drop down to verse 14. John says these just unbelievable words. And that word, that Jesus, all right, the word that was with God and was God became flesh and dwelt among us. That that word moved into the neighborhood, took on flesh and blood, that there is nothing that you and I experience that is foreign to the word made flesh, that Jesus can perfectly empathize and sympathize with your story and with my story, that he dealt with all of it. And he's here and he dwells among us. And it says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And he comes full of grace and truth. So if you think about it now, we just read a section out of, toward the end of John 14. Jesus, this word made flesh, came and dwelt amongst his people. And for 30 years, he lived in relative obscurity, likely learning his father's trade, likely swinging a hammer, right? Likely learning all of that, dealing with his brothers and, and sisters, going through puberty, all of these things, right? This is what Jesus would have dealt with, the human experience with all the highs and lows and insecurities that come with that. And then he bursts onto the scene. And as we looked at last week, he declares like, I am here. I'm the fulfillment of Isaiah 9. I've come to bring liberation and redemption. And for three years, there's a group of followers, his disciples that travel with him, 
they're taught by him individually and just in their little small group of 12. They're also taught as they see the crowds gather and they've got a front row seat to hear Jesus deliver some of the most amazing, the most amazing teachings they've ever heard. Like people are just like, who, like, who has ever taught like this? And it's not just his teachings, it's the miracles that he performs. It's the healings that he brings. It's the restoration. It's the casting out of demons. It's ushering in this kingdom of light that is pushing back the kingdom of darkness. And so imagine you're one of the disciples and for three years, you've seen the word made flesh, not in the abstract, not from a distance, but you've walked with him, you've traveled with him, You've literally followed this one who's this rabbi to every place, to every town, into every conversation. There's nothing that he said, hey, just butt out for a moment. This is, this is something I just need to take care of. No, like he is inviting them to have this front row seat. But if we were to read some of the preceding verses to what I read in John 14, we know that we're in a section in the book of John where Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet He's getting ready to go to the cross. He's beginning to communicate even more clearly and emphatically what's going to happen to him. And then he makes this statement to them. He had told them just a few verses before, I am going to the Father. Now, at this point in the story, obviously we have disciples who have expectations, their own messianic expectations. A lot of them just hoping that Jesus would be the one to like rid them of the Romans. They had a certain way of life. They wanted their will to be done. They wanted it to look a certain way. They had kingdom expectations that they thought it should be X, Y, or Z. And Jesus is not here to just meet all of their expectations. But he has been present with them. And he says, I'm gonna go to the Father. And so just imagine how jarring that would have been. Imagine the disruption that would have taken place, how disorienting that would have been. Like, wait, wait, wait. I thought we were like in this together, like the word made flesh, right? Like, where are you going? And it's in that context, friends, that we come into this. And Jesus, we'll look at verse 15 and some of the themes about obedience and commandments more in a moment. But look at verse 16 then. Jesus says, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Like he's promising one that's gonna come. This helper is going to be sent. Jesus is gonna make the request to God, the father. So the word made flesh, Jesus, the second person in the Trinity is gonna request from the father, the first person in the Trinity to send the third person of the Trinity called the helper here or the Holy Spirit. And even the spirit of truth in the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. He's like saying, friends, like you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So what Jesus is convinced of and what he's been saying to his disciples and the same thing that he would say to us if we put ourselves in their shoes, because here, here's how I think this often plays out for us. We can think, man, I wish I had been there with the word made flesh. Imagine the conversations, imagine the travel, imagine getting to see the miracles. Like in those times of doubt, and maybe you're wrestling with doubt right now. You're like, man, if I could only have that, that would be amazing. And no doubt it would be. But Jesus has been very clear that he has to go away and that he's going to send the spirit and that it is actually better. So you've experienced God with us, he's saying to his disciples, but you experience God with us 
when Jesus is in this town, having this conversation in this particular place, but he's got something better in store. He's gonna send the third person of the Trinity, right? Not this abstract idea, but rather a person. And this person will not be limited by flesh and blood to be in one town, one city, one neighborhood at a time. Because Jesus in his flesh, he was never, right? In Jerusalem and Capernaum at the same time, right? He was in one place in one time, having one conversation, one interaction, doing one miracle, whatever it happened to be. But now he's saying, it's better that I go away. But do we really believe that? We can, if we're honest, I think we can struggle with that to be like that. Man, I, I think I'd, I want Jesus. I don't know what to do with the Holy Spirit. But Jesus wants to make it very, very clear. Like, no, I'm gonna send another helper and he will be with you forever. He will never leave. He's not limited by time and space. He literally is present with us. So if you're in Christ, friends, this idea of longing for Emmanuel, longing for God with us, God is with us right now. God is with you individually if you're in Christ. God is with us collectively as the church. Like that's unbelievable. What an amazing gift. Now to go deeply theological for a moment, we'll talk Christmas movies, all right? My guess is you've probably been watching some of your favorites. And I think if, you know, if we took a poll and asked you to shout it out, like, you know, you'd have your Christmas movie favorite, right? And we, then we can judge whether or not that's a good one or not. I'll let you in on a favorite Christmas movie for me and uh, for um, like my side of the family, in particular, one sister um, who really, really loves this, all right? And I'm talking about none other than National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, all right? I told you it's getting very deep theologically very quickly here. So just hang tight, right? Now, if you don't know this story, you're no longer welcome at this church. No, I'm kidding. All right. Um, but in this particular film, all right, Chevy Chase plays this, this the father, right? He's this kind of patriarch of this family. Um, and he, he just wants so desperately for like every little thing to go right. And he's anticipating like the in-laws and everybody coming in, uh, even this character that shows up unexpectedly, the beloved cousin Eddie, all right? Um, and so both the planned and the unplanned. And so it's just mass chaos at his house. He's trying to get all the lights. He's trying to get all the shopping done. If, anyway, if you know the, the story though, you know the big thing that's driving so much of this story is that he has been working like mad and he's been trying to, put together plans so that he can put in a swimming pool for the family. And he has these like daydreams about just like the barbecues and the gatherings and all the, the, all the amazing things that are gonna happen once they put this pool in. But what he needs in order to pull that off, right? He needs his Christmas bonus. Every year he's gotten a Christmas bonus from the company that he has given his entire career to. And day after day goes by and he keeps checking the mailbox and nothing's showing up. There was nothing given at work. There's nothing showing up in the mail. And now it's Christmas Eve and all the families gathered there and they've endured all, all the things. It's been just crazy. And there's a knock on the door, right? And it's this courier who's just like, I'm so sorry. Like this fell between the, the, like the seats of my car, but it's this envelope. And Chevy Chase like receives this, right? This Clark Griswold character, like he receives this envelope and he gathers the family around. And he's just got this big stupid grin on his face, right? He's just so happy. And he's just like, 
I was going to wait till tomorrow, but I'm just so excited. I want you to know, like with this bonus, I'm putting in a Christmas, I'm putting in a swimming pool and I'm going to fly all of you crazy family members back to celebrate with me once it's right. And everybody's like rejoicing and he tears into the envelope. And then he just has this look on his face of just utter shock. And his wife trying to be encouraging is like, honey, is the check more than you thought, right? And he's just got this like, psychotic grin on his face at this point, as you can just see, he's just like losing touch with reality, all right? And he finally is able to utter the words that in, rather than getting the yearly and expected Christmas bonus that would help put in the pool that he'd already put the deposit down, he owes the money. He has instead received a year-long subscription to the Jelly of the Month Club. And in this scene, as he's staring, there's Cousin Eddie in the background. Well, Clark, that's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. <laughs> and Clark like, I know, Eddie, right? And it's just this moment and you feel the pain. Now, I tell you that silly illustration for one, so you can know what type of Christmas movie I like, uh, but also in this, right? He's waiting for this gift. And then this other thing shows up and it's a colossal just failure, disappointment, right? Despite what cousin Eddie says, it's like, no, that's not what I wanted. And I think if we're honest, we read a text like this and we hear Jesus say, it's better that I go because then you'll have the spirit not to be limited by time and space or any of those things. But do we actually really believe that? Do we believe that we're getting some second rate gift? Do we believe that we're getting the equivalent of sort of like the jelly of the month club? Like, that's great, but I wanted, I wanted the word made flesh, and now I just got the spirit. I don't know what to do with that. Well, the Bible knows nothing of that. Like Jesus, we should take him as his wor- at his word, right? He is the word made flesh, and he's speaking a word. He comes in grace and truth, and he says, this is this gift. You should rejoice in it. And he continues, he's like, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Because my presence, the spirit will be with you. I will come to you. And he says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. You'll continually be pointed to me through this spirit because I, because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I, listen to this language of union here. I am in my father and you in me and I in you. I mean, this, we don't have categories for this. What a gift this is. What Jesus is laying out is he's saying, there is a promised presence. The spirit is coming. And this spirit, right? The third person of the Trinity is gonna take up its dwelling. This longing you and I have for like God with us, like he is here with us. In this Advent season, like have you, have, have I been living with that awareness that like, oh my goodness, like God is here with us. He's not left us as orphans. He's not abandoned us. Even when we're faithless, he continues to be faithful to us. And so this promised presence is the one that God is going to send to us and it's going to be used in such a profound way to be this sanctifying presence. So that sanctification again, right? Like that growth in Christ-likeness, empowering us to be obedient to God's will to God's ways, to God's word. Look back with me at verses 21 to 26. What we see here is some talk about commandments and, and law. And I, here's what I think I know at least, because I can read these things and get a little nervous about it. Is this telling us like, we've got to earn something. We've got to do something in order for God to love us. Like look at 
20, I'll read 21 and 23 here. Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. We're like, yeah, like I want all that. I want that love and the manifest, all, all of that. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My father will love him and he will come to him and we will come to him and make our home with him. That idea, that, that promise, that invitation like of, of dwelling with us. And it raises the question like, is it contingent though on like, my obedience to God's word, to his commandments, to his laws, it contingent on yours. It would be a gigantic misreading to think that it's ever contingent on us. We're all in a bad place. There's literally nothing to celebrate. Take down all the Christmas decor, right? Don't celebrate it. If it's up to us to somehow earn our way. I love the way Dallas Willard puts it. And he's saying there is this work of sanctification that by God's grace and power by the spirit that we get to participate in, but we don't earn anything. He says, currently, we are not only saved by grace, we are sometimes, he says, paralyzed by it. We find it hard to see that grace, it is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. Earning and effort are not the same thing. Like we need to separate those things out. Earning is an attitude. And grace is definitely opposed to that. But friends, it is not opposed to effort. And so if you're operating with this mindset or hearing these verses, like you've got to do this in order to get God to love you, that's not what the scriptures are saying. Sanctification is an act of God's grace. What it's telling us is like, the more you and I press into our justification, the more it will lead to our sanctification. The more you and I, like we experience more and more transformation. I think as we press deeply into the truth that we've been loved by God, that we've been rescued by him. And one of the ways that you know and have a confidence or an assurance that God is at work in you, that you have God dwelling with you is this increased desire to be obedient to his word. Now we will fail again and again and again. And then one of the other ways that we know that God is with us is because that same spirit who dwells among the people, one of his kindnesses toward us as he leads us in repentance. And so when you feel that conviction of sin, we're like, oh, I didn't follow this command. I didn't trust the Lord in these ways. I didn't surrender to him. It's all a work of grace. And sure, there, there's some effort involved in that, but it's not earning. You're not earning anything. We also shouldn't like sugarcoat. I mean, Jesus said, like, take up your cross and follow me. Like there's gonna be some cost, but it all flows out of like this love, this appreciation of what it ultimately costs Jesus. This desire that we have to wanna bring glory to God. And then part of it is in believing that in bringing glory to God, that's where we find our joy. We looked at this in our Genesis series over and over again, right? Everything comes back to this old story out of Genesis three, where they don't believe, Adam and Eve do not believe that living for God's glory will ultimately bring joy. So they reach for the fruit. I want to do what I want to do. You want to do what you want to do. Adam and Eve wanted to do what they wanted to, to do. And it leads to the place of discouragement, devastation, despair, all of these things, everything starts to unravel. Like, do you and I believe that living a life of obedience is synonymous with actually a life of joy? It's empowered by the Spirit. Now, I can't do it on my own. This is why God sent the Holy Spirit. 
And then when we think about commandments, you might have some that come to mind, right? That you're like, well, what about this commandment? I have struggled with that one. Sure, like we can, I know there's things that are gonna be difficult. I'm not trying to, again, sugarcoat that. But you know, one of the most frequent commands in the Bible, right? Fear not, do not fear. I don't know that I often take time to even repent of like, oh, I didn't obey that command. Like how much like anxiety and stress and things do I just invite in because I've been disobedient to the command of do not fear. Not surrendering particular situations to the Lord. What if I believed that he is with me, that he will never forsake me, that he is sovereign over every situation? What would it look like to obey in those senses? Friends, like the law, we don't have time to deep dive into this. I've linked out an article um, on the, the sermon notes, but even just the law, sometimes we can get confused and like, well, what purpose does it have? And we read through all the things in the Old Testament, but at a high level, at one thing, it's meant to reflect to us the nature and character of God and to showcase for us then our sinfulness. So it would lead to repentance. That's one of the things that happens with the law. Another thing is when we read God's commands, it's also there to restrain, like God's given it to just restrain the evil that would run rampant if not for the law. But it also is meant to reveal, to reveal what pleases the Lord. Praise God that he doesn't say, I'll let you figure it out, like what actually brings life. He has been so clear, so kind to us to say, this here, I'm revealing to you what my will is. Love God, love neighbor. He doesn't make it overly complicated. He keeps giving us these revelations so that we would know ultimately how to live in a way that would please him. And in doing so, we would actually find joy and we'd experience this kindness as we experience his grace. That's why Paul would say, again, these can be confusing words if we get it goofed up about earning and effort, right? Philippians 2 verse 12, therefore my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. And then Paul says these words, work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. That idea like, hmm, work this out, work out your salvation. Does that mean earn your salvation? No, it's work out the implications of how the way of Jesus, this gospel story is meant to literally touch every aspect of your life that there would be this glad surrender and obedience as we seek the Lord and his ways for our relationships and for our finances and for our sexuality and for our hobbies. And you just fill in the blank, like literally everything in this glorious world that God has given to us, like work it out, work out the implications and keep this clear. It is a work out, not work for. Work this out is effort. Work four gets into that attitude of earning. Jesus has earned it all, friends. We now get to live in glad response to that. And so as so we go back to John 14, then we get these words. So whoever does not love me does not keep my words. It's another way of saying this, these same things. And the word that you hear is not mine. It's the father's who sent me. So Jesus is like, hey, I'm not making this stuff up, right? Like I'm just communicating what the father has sent me to say. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. Now look at this. Again, another reference to the helper, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. 
part of the sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit is to bring to mind what is the ultimate truth? What are the things that you and I, we can be so prone to forget? And at one level, when John is writing this, all right, it's a way that Jesus is communicating, certainly to the, the apostles, all right? Hey, the Holy Spirit's gonna come after Jesus ascends, then the day of Pentecost and the, the Spirit comes. And these particular men will be inspired to write what we know as the New Testament. They're gonna write, this is what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, right? Like these remembrances that the Holy Spirit brought to them of the life of Jesus. And so that's one aspect of it, but it's not limited to that. There's this ongoing work of the Spirit that the way we grow in our sanctification and that longing gets fulfilled as the Spirit keeps speaking this word of truth and of grace, these words of reminder to us. What is it that we need to remember? The Holy Spirit is so unbelievably gifted to be the great reminder for you and me. The Holy Spirit does his job perfectly. And the Holy Spirit's job is to continue as J.I. Packer in his book, Keeping a Step with the Spirit says, is to shine like this floodlight onto the person and work of Jesus. It's not to fixate on the light, it's to see what the light is pointing to. And the spirit that's dwelling with you, within you and me here this morning is like, Let's look to Jesus. Let's point to Jesus. And this gets us then into our last section. What we have is this advocating presence. And so to understand this for these last few minutes, we got to go back to verse 16. Did you notice when I read this earlier, it says this, Jesus says, I will ask the father and he's got this great gift for you. It's not a second rate gift. It's no jelly of the month club, right? I've got this unbelievable gift, another helper. And that word helper there is this Greek word paracletes, all right? And this word can be translated as we see here as helper. It can also mean counselor, like we looked at that last week in Isaiah 9, this wonderful counselor, this one who embodies all wisdom, like run to him, seek his counsel, right? He's the helper. It literally means to like this parakaleo, like to come alongside. So you think of things like paramedics or paralegals, the way they come alongside to assist the Holy Spirit is there to come alongside to help. But the language is a little fascinating, isn't it? Another helper. So this word paraclete shows up one other time in the New Testament. And it's telling us if there's another helper, so if there's the Holy Spirit being sent as this paraclete, as this helper, well, there's obviously, there was a first paraclete. There's a first Helper, And where do we see that? Well, John, who wrote the Gospel of John, also has these letters of 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. And in 1 John chapter 2, let me read to you where this word shows up. And this time it's translated differently, but it's the same word, paraclete. My little children, John writes, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, which he's like, is everyone, all right? So, all right, that you may not sin, but you're going to, all right? We have, and here's our word, a paraclete. We have the first helper, the first counselor. And as it's translated here, we have the first advocate. This is legal courtroom language. This is defense attorney pleading a case. We have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the second paraclete is the Holy Spirit, but the first is Jesus. 
This is the advocating presence that you and I need. And it says, he is the propitiation. It's another translation as he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Anybody can get in on this. That Jesus is that advocate. And that word propitiation literally means to absorb, to take the wrath of God that should have been poured out on you and on me, but instead was poured out on Jesus, the original advocate, and then turns it to favor, turns it to grace. That's unbelievable. And so the language that's being used here is one where Jesus is our advocate pleading before the Father, forgive them. In fact, just a few verses earlier in 1 John 1, verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful. But do you notice that next word? He's faithful and what? He is just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I think our tendency, my tendency would be, he is faithful and then fill in the blank with like, he is kind, he's merciful, he's gracious, right? We maybe can even picture this courtroom where Jesus is pleading with the father, hey, please just forgive Jamie, right? Like give him another shot. He had a cold this week, it was a man cold. He was just terrible, right? Like, like that. But that's not the language here. Why does he use the word just? Because Jesus is pleading, he's our advocate with the father saying, I've already paid for Jamie's sin. I've paid for the sins of the whole world. He has paid for your sin. So you have this original advocate who's saying, you can't be tried again. That's been paid for. That's been punished. He was punished in our place. He's the original helper. He's the original counselor. He's the original advocate. And I love what Tim Keller says in his book, Encounters with Jesus. He says, the first advocate then, Jesus, is speaking to God for you. He's pleading your case. And he's got a great case to make because he's like, I was perfect, a sinless, and I died in their place. Like you can't bring anything against them. So he's speaking to God for you. But the second advocate is speaking to you for you. Do you realize the, the role of the Holy Spirit here? Jesus is pleading the case of what he has accomplished to the Father. And then those truths, which can we admit, sometimes they stay in the realm of the abstract, but we have the Holy Spirit who's saying, let that sink in. When the voice of condemnation shows up, when we sin again, we're like, ah, I was trying to be better. I messed up again. And there's that shame, there's that, that spiral, that cycle of shame again, that just kind of kicks into high gear all of those things that we begin to experience, the Holy Spirit is given to remind you to help apply the truths of the gospel. We'll go one more movie reference. I was gonna ask you if it's okay, but I guess I have the mic. So here we go, all right? Um, there's an old, uh, going some older movies, right? I'm showing you my age, but uh, 1997, um, a, a movie came out called Goodwill Hunting. Uh, uh, highly commend the story, maybe not the language, but you know. Um, but in this particular story, this is kind of where Matt Damon and Ben Affleck burst onto the, the scene, something that they like put together, right? And in this story, if you have seen it before, Matt Damon plays this character, Will Hunting, and he is not just like, like a genius, he actually is a genius. But he's gotten himself into so much trouble. He's had a terrible like childhood and upbringing as he's bounced, bounced from like foster home to foster home, right? 
never feeling settled, never having much consistent community, never having people that would really love and care for him consistently. And he ends up though as a janitor at MIT and he like goes in at night and this, this math professor, as he's laying out all the, these problems on the board, like he answers them and they can't figure out who's doing it until someone realizes, oh, the janitor's answering all of these questions, right? And in this story, he gets himself in, in trouble and he has that professor actually going to advocate for him to say like, hey, I know he's violated his parole. He had been in jail. He's gonna go back again, but this kid is gifted. And he says, I'll make sure that he like stays out of trouble and I'll make sure that he sees a, a therapist. And the therapist is introduced in the movie as the late, great Robin Williams. And Robin Williams begins to meet with this Matt Damon character, this, this Will Hunting. And there's this scene late in the film where he's in his office. He's like, oh, don't spoil it for me. It's been out since 97. You've had time, okay? Um, but in this, he, he walks in, Matt Damon walks into Robin Williams' office. Robin Williams has this folder and he's kind of just doing this, thumbing through it. And Matt Damon's like, is that my file? And he's like, yeah. And he's kind of just looking through and you're seeing like, here's the story of like when he went from this family to this and he was abandoned by these people. And then there's just horrible photos of bruises all over Matt Damon's body as he'd been beat by a foster dad that was supposed to care for him and protect him, but instead sinned against this young boy. And he continues to flip through and he, he sees, and here's when he had trouble in school and here's when he got in trouble with the law and here's when he went to juvie, like all, all these things, right? And Matt Damon's kind of sitting across the, the room and he has this, this moment and he's just, you know, he's like, he's like, oh, what's it gonna, you know, it say stuff in there about like how, you know, Will can't attach to people and how he can't experience love. And, uh, you know, it's like, he kind of knows the, even the therapeutic things to say. And Robin Williams sets the file down. And as he sees Matt Damon kind of leaning against the, the, the wall or against this cabinet across the room, he just looks across at him. And he's like, hey, Will, it's not your fault. And Will responds, I, I know. And he's like, it's not your fault. And he's like, I know. And Robin Williams is like, I, I, I don't know if you heard me. It's not your fault. And he keeps saying it with every step that he, every time he says it, he's taking a step closer and closer to the point that Matt Damon is starting to get uncomfortable with it. And he's moved away from the wall. And now he's in this kind of tense position. And Robin Williams is moving closer and closer. He's like, well, it's not your fault. And he ends up pushing Robin Williams. And rather than backing away, Robin Williams continues to move toward him. And he looks him in this one moment, and he's like looking him into the eyes, like he's peering into his soul. And he looks at this young man, this genius who's been sinned against in horrific ways. And he says these words again, it's not your fault. And something hits. And you have this scene here, Will, where Will just clasps on, grabs a hold of Robin Williams' shoulders there around his neck, and he just sobs. He absolutely breaks down. The power in this scene, the breakthrough is because Robin Williams in that moment is being an advocate for him. 
No one had ever stood up. No one had actually seen the ways that he had been sinned against. Nobody had recognized the brokenness. And he's like, I see you across the room and I am moving toward you. He is being an advocate for him. And it brings this truth home in a way that yes, Will would have said, I know, but now he knows. And friends, we have something so much better because my story is not one that can be completely, it's not your fault. Sure, I've been sinned against, but I've also sinned. And I'm stuck in a pattern of sin, but God shows up and he sent his spirit to remind me that Jesus is pleading the case and Jesus is communicating to me. And if you're in Christ, he's communicating to you. It's paid in full, it's covered, it's finished. I love you, I'm not going anywhere. You're with me. I'm with you. You're in me. There is this union. There is this bond that we are bound together. And there is nothing that you can do that would separate the love that I have for you. Like it can't be undone. We are in this together. Jesus advocating to the Father and the Spirit advocating to you, to your heart and my heart. The next time that voice of condemnation comes, when we feel that disruption and that lack of peace, remember, he sees you, he's your advocate and allow that to bring the change and the transformation. That's why Jesus can conclude with this in verse 27, peace I leave with you. And look at this, my peace, the very peace that Jesus possesses, I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's only possible when we know the one who is advocating for us, the advocate that he has sent, God with us, like right now. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for this encouragement. Thank you that you are with us, that you, that you came once, that you're coming again, but that you also are here with us, that you're present amongst your people as just these common means of your grace. As we open up your word, as we pray, as we participate in this meal, these are all ordinary means of your grace that you work through to communicate that you are with us, that you are for us, that Jesus, you have earned our forgiveness. And that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of the Father. And so we give you praise for that. May you be honored and glorified as we continue to worship you. Thank you that you are God with us. May you get the glory. May we experience a deep and abiding joy and peace now. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.